Welcome to episode one, Medical Necessity, Why You Legally and Ethically Need to Know What It Is, by Elizabeth Irias, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. From Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. I will be your presenter for today. My name is Elizabeth Irias, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist with specializations in utilization review, clinical management, and quality assurance. As a consultant and trainer, I work with clinical teams across the country to improve their quality of care, as well as their documentation practices and their utilization review outcomes. I also operate a private practice in Westlake Village, California, where I provide care to adolescent and young adult clients, as well as do family therapy and addictive disorder treatment with an additional focus on LGBT. Today, we're going to be discussing medical necessity, why you legally and ethically need to know what it is. I'm excited to share some knowledge with you that will hopefully help improve the way you conceptualize medical necessity and help you integrate it into your clinical record. Medical necessity is certainly not one of the most sparkly topics, but it is critical to providing high-quality client care, and I'm here to offer you some tips to help you understand medical necessity and how it relates to your work. The work that you do is critically important, and fully integrating medical necessity both serves our clients and us. You do this important work, and that requires appropriate documentation of medical necessity that keeps us going and our clients. It's really the backbone of the care that we provide and it needs to guide our decision-making process, both from a legal and ethical standpoint. Many of you probably had a professor at some point say, if the client has achieved their goals, then it's time to terminate care. That statement points to medical necessity and we'll review its implications in this course. Basically, we need to be sure that the care that we're providing is medically appropriate and that there is a reasonable belief that this care is going to help the client achieve his, her, or their ideal functioning, whatever that might be. This course will help break down medical necessity and also give you some tips on how to apply it to your work to make you a more conscientious and even better provider than you already are. I really believe that as behavioral health providers, we're all in this together. We need to support one another. We need to work together. And I think that part of this is also having conversations about things like clinical documentation, because it's such an important part of the care that we provide, and it has such a big impact on us and on our clients. When we don't appropriately document medical necessity, it leaves us open for risks like uh, board complaints or lawsuits. And it also means that our clients might be denied care that they need by third-party payers like insurance companies. That's pretty important stuff. I want to start out today's training by talking about the way I see it. My hope is to impart some knowledge today that will help you better conceptualize medical necessity and how it applies to your work and also streamline and improve your clinical documentation practices. I know that this is not the most sparkly of topics, but it is really critical for us to understand this in order to provide high quality care. And I'm also hopefully going to be able to offer some insight that's going to make the process of clinical documentation a little bit better and easier for you. We have a very severe behavioral health access issue in the United States in the sense that many people who need behavioral health treatment aren't able to secure it because of the cost or because of hurdles that they might face with third-party payers. And part of this equation is medical necessity. Without medical necessity, there really isn't a purpose for the care that we're providing. So through today's training, hopefully we can break down why it's such a critical part of our care and also talk about what the laws are that relate to it and improve the way that we document medical necessity for a lot of different reasons. And we'll talk about those benefits today. Chances are, if you selected this training, that you've heard the term medical necessity before, but maybe don't have a really good idea of what it is. So I want to start by taking a cue from the medical model. When it comes to the medical model, there's this overarching concept that you have a a client or a patient that comes in with a specific set of symptoms or concerns. There's an evaluation that takes place or an assessment and then a diagnosis and a formal treatment plan in order to remedy those symptoms or that illness. 
In the behavioral health world, it's really only been in the relative recent past that we have formal diagnostic procedures and that we're being asked to come up with a formal treatment plan. And basically that's because we're, we're uh, needing to mirror the medical model. We live in a world of medically necessary treatment and managed care. And I call it managed care land. And when we're in the world of managed care land, we need to be consistently uh, documenting and providing justification for why the service we're delivering, delivering is medically necessary or medically appropriate. The same is true in the medical environment. So we can't have a doctor just arbitrarily decide to treat a condition. They have to have some research set or some idea of why their treatment might be effective to remedy that condition. In our work, we function the same way, but a lot of times a medical necessity, while it may be here in our minds, it doesn't really translate into the clinical chart. And we'll talk about why some of that might be an issue when it's not documented appropriately. One of the questions I get quite a bit is whether or not medical necessity really matters for clinicians or practitioners who are in private practice. The folks who do not accept insurance payments, who are not part of grant-funded care, who don't accept payments from services like Medicare? The answer to that question is yes. Medical necessity is still important regardless of your funding source. When we really break it down, medical necessity from an ethical standpoint has to be the backbone of the care that we're providing, be it therapy or counseling. So when we look at the medical model, a doctor is only delivering services if they believe that these services have some justification, uh, there's some research set or belief that it's going to improve the client or patient symptoms. When we take that and we apply it to us, the same is true for us as mental health practitioners. So before we even get to the documentation of medical necessity, we still need to have an understanding of what medical necessity is from a very fundamental standpoint and really continually ask ourselves, uh, why am I recommending this treatment? Why do I believe that this treatment might make this person feel better, improve their symptoms? Maybe it's going to maintain their current uh, functional status. When we answer those questions, then we're really digging deep and looking at medical necessity. The part that many practitioners struggle with is then getting that medical necessity to translate into the clinical chart. So how do we let our documentation be a persuasive tool to inform someone reading it why we did what we did, why we think that this person has a certain diagnosis, why we recommended a certain treatment frequency or a certain treatment or intervention. Maybe we changed the modality from individual counseling to couples counseling. Maybe we recommended groups. All of those things come down to medical necessity. And so regardless of what the funding source is, we need to pretty much continually have these glasses on looking for medical necessity. We need to be asking ourselves consistently, again, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I recommending this care? And when we answer those questions, then we capture medical necessity. So for those clients or patients who are seeing us through cash pay, so they're in a private practice-based environment, they're not through an insurance uh, uh, companies manage care authorization, they're not there through Medicare or another state-funded program or a grant. Those clients and patients are still affected by our charts. For example, it can affect short-term or long-term disability. It could affect a court case. Um, there are situations where our documents are called on sometimes years after a service has been delivered, which also has a direct impact on us. So again, regardless of what funding source we accept, medical necessity is one of those really critical components that has to make its way into the chart. And we'll talk more today about some of the different intricacies of this, both applying to insurance and also to those of us who don't accept insurance. We can't really take a look at medical necessity without first taking a jaunt into the utilization review process. Utilization review and utilization management are checks and balances for the insurance company. Per Merriam-Webster Dictionary, utilization review is, quote-unquote, a critical evaluation, as by a physician or nurse, of healthcare services provided to patients that is especially for the purpose of controlling costs and monitoring quality of care. 
as it says, it really is to evaluate whether or not the service that's being delivered is clinically or medically appropriate, and also to see if it's even effective. Um, the other side note of this is that there were plenty of providers that were gaming the system and committing fraud. So they were billing services for clients that either didn't exist or they were over billing services relative to what they were actually doing in the office with a client or patient. In order to start managing this, the insurance company kind of had to come up with a process to evaluate and review claims. So with utilization review, uh, medical or behavioral health, what's involved is a practitioner evaluating, again, a symptom set, coming up with a diagnosis, and then submitting that to the insurance company and requesting authorization to deliver whatever treatment it is that they deem necessary. The insurance company may deny that request because of lack of medical necessity. When it comes to fraud detection and management, there, there was a time that these things were happening kind of unchecked, that providers were taking advantage of the system and were going to insurance companies requesting authorization and kind of delivering services willy-nilly or not even delivering them at all and billing them. The industry then got caught up in kind of trying to find the right balance. So how do insurance companies help set some standards about what is medically appropriate and medically necessary while still allowing providers some medical and clinical autonomy to do that which they think is appropriate to help their patients? For example, um, when I say evaluating quality or efficacy, let's pretend that we had a chiropractor who's uh, treating a skin condition. This isn't medically appropriate. Uh, chances are that that chiropractor is not experienced enough or specialized enough to be effectively managing that. And a process like utilization management would hopefully catch that. For us in behavioral health, one of the difficulties that we face is that what we do is not as concrete as medical. So in the medical world, sometimes the figures and the numbers themselves associated with medical conditions are really cut and dry. What's the um, baseline for high blood pressure? What are we looking for in terms of blood sugar in order to justify a diabetes medication? All of these things are very concrete. In behavioral health, on the other hand, it's much more nuanced. So with providers, we may see a patient and determine that the client has relatively severe depression, but they may go to a different practitioner and that practitioner could say that they have dysthymia. In order for us to justify the treatment that we're delivering, we have to establish and show how it's medically necessary and how we arrived at the particular diagnosis and the treatment that we're recommending. Let's take a look at the history of medical necessity in the United States. Way back in the 1940s, private insurers emerged from the hospital industry, and this term medical necessity was used to describe any medical service that was covered by the insurance company. Insurers set monetary limits for services, but they avoided any judgment about the appropriate of, of, of the clinical decisions by, by the physicians. And the doctor's choices regarding treatment were largely autonomous. Fast forward to the 60s and 70s, and insurance companies began creating written guidelines that defined medical necessity, and private insurers began requiring physicians to formally justify the necessity of the medical treatments that they were recommending or pursuing. A bigger shift happened in the 1980s. Uh, private insurance companies then initiated the utilization review and pre-certification process similar to what we have now. The introduction of Medicaid led to state-specific definitions in which cost-effectiveness became part of the criteria. And here, economic rather than medical standards became the most common justification for denying treatment. So again, this was a really big shift that happened in the industry where we went from the medical autonomy of doctors to insurance companies evaluating the economic impact of the treatment that the doctors were recommending. Move forward to the 1990s, and we enter the age of healthcare reform. According to the proposed criteria in healthcare reform at the time, if a medical treatment was quote unquote effective, beneficial, and judicious, it would be deemed medically necessary. However, this language was ultimately excised from the final reform healthcare bill, and that ultimately failed to pass. 
So there was there was an attempt that was made to standardize a definition of medical necessity and kind of take back some of the autonomy for the doctors from the insurance company, but it wasn't or companies, but it ultimately wasn't successful. Then we fast forward yet again to the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008. It doesn't actually define medical necessity, but it does require that managed care companies distribute coverage and level of care guidelines and parameters. This is really important to providers, and we'll talk more on that in a few slides. There have been a few individual states that have added to this law by requiring the use of specific clinical care criteria developed by nonprofit independent physician specialty groups like the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry or the American Society of Addiction Medicine, also known as ASAM. Um, So there are some state-specific guidelines in relation to these standard clinical care criteria However, there is not a formal definition for behavioral health medical necessity in the United States. Again, there's no formal definition for behavioral health medical necessity in the U.S. I do want to also note some systems like Medicare have adopted formal medical necessity definitions, but they're specific to those plan provisions and aren't applicable across the board. So what happens in the absence of this formal definition of medical necessity in the United States? Well, a number of different organizations and companies have stepped forward to offer their own definitions, but this kind of muddies warfare for us as practitioners. Who do we listen to and who is ultimately the authority that deems whether or not a service is medically necessary or medically appropriate? Let's take a look at what really underlies our clinical records. Our clinical records tell the story of treatment, who, what, where, why, and when. Really and truly, our clinical documentation is a persuasive tool. This is the term that's used by David Jensen, one of the camp staff attorneys. And what he means by persuasive tools, that basically our documents, our progress notes, should tell a story to the reader about what's going on and why we did what we did what progress we're we're seeing, and what improvement we're hoping to achieve. One of the misunderstandings in our field is that our progress notes or our charts are the property of the patient. In fact, our charts are for us. They really have a lot to do with our credibility, and part of this credibility is medical medical necessity. Did we do what was appropriate for this client And if treatment wasn't working, what did we do in order to modify it or recommend an alternative treatment in order to serve the best interests of the patient? And going back to this concept of who, what, where, why, and when, I want to speak to this as somebody with a specialization in clinical documentation. So what I see often when I look at charts, I see the who. I see that the client was there and that the provider was an MFT or the provider was a RAD-T or whatever specialization they had. I often see what. So is it family therapy? Was it relapse prevention? What service was being delivered? I see where. Did it happen at home? Did it happen um, at the facility or in the therapy office? I also see when. What time of day was it? When did the service start? When did it end? The piece that I often see that's missing is the why. This is one of the really critical components to medical necessity. Why did I do what I did? Why did I recommend this treatment? Why did I diagnose this person with this specific condition? This why part is one of the most critical components to medical necessity. And that's the part that really needs to weave its way through the chart. I often see see progress notes that are more of a play-by-play or almost a script of what happened in session. Client said X, Y, Z. Clinician said blah, blah, blah. Client said blah, 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 blah. But there isn't really an explanation as to why the clinician did what they did or what symptoms or factors were taken into consideration. 
And how I conceptualize this is like, basically, this is the why is where we put on our fancy clinical hats. So we pull those hats down over our heads and we say, okay, here's my clinical interpretation. Here's why I have all these fancy letters after my name and why I'm delivering this service. Remember that that why is the backbone of medical necessity and has to consistently be in your medical documentation in order to be a persuasive tool. Just having a script of what happened in session is not a persuasive tool and it doesn't serve our credibility. That critical thread of medical necessity comes down to the reasoning for what uh, service you're delivering or um, what treatment methodology you're using. I want to pull a quote from a book called Treatment Planning for Person-Centered Care by Adams and Greeter that was released in 2014. The quote is this, simply stated, the demonstration of medical necessity requires that there is a legitimate clinical need and that services provided are an appropriate response. Our charts, therefore, need to establish that there is a legitimate clinical need and we need to be constantly illustrating that what we're doing is an appropriate response. Jumping back to the use of the medical model. Imagine a doctor delivering a service that isn't actually appropriate, like recommending an unrelated medication to treat a condition uh, when it hasn't shown to have any effectiveness. Or let's say that the doctor continues to recommend a service that isn't working, like if a physician recommended physical therapy to a client that's been doing it for years and there really hasn't been much improvement. That would be unethical, right? And it would fall way outside the standard of care. We need to hold ourselves to the same standard model and our charts need to show this legitimate clinical need and the appropriateness of the treatment. Moreover, if a treatment isn't working, we need to change it. And if it's still not working, we need to stop it because that's what we'd want from our doctors, right? So again, going back to that concept of the why underlying our clinical records, we need to show why there's a legitimate clinical need and why these services are appropriate. Pulling from the same book, let's talk about what's necessary in order to meet medical necessity. Most third-party payers like insurance companies or Medi-Cal will only pay for services if they are the following. Indicated, appropriate, efficacious, effective, and efficient. So let's break down these concepts. Number one, indicated. This means that there's a relevant diagnosis. So one thing that I've seen, for example, in working with different substance use disorder treatment facilities, there are clients that have dual diagnoses, but there may be a treatment mismatch if the primary diagnosis of a client is mental health related and not substance use disorder related. So in that case, it's not really indicated if we have a client who has, for example, PTSD as a primary diagnosis, and they're being treated at a substance use disorder treatment facility. Number two, appropriate. This means that the treatment or level of care meets the client's needs. So let's say that a client has a minor substance use problem and that it's caused relatively limited impact in his, her, or their functioning or um, their symptoms aren't that severe then it isn't appropriate to recommend that that client go to detox or residential care. So it's making sure that the treatment matches the severity of the client's presentation and also meets their needs. So is the treatment reasonable? Is it within a reasonable distance from the client's home? Is it feasible given other commitments or other special needs that that client might have? Number three, efficacious. Uh, is there some likelihood that this intervention or service will be effective? Has there been some research to show that the treatment will work or is it just a random shot in the dark? We know that the empirically based practice seeking safety, for example, has been shown to be an effective treatment for trauma survivors. So we can make the assumption that the treatment may be effective for a client with trauma that's sitting in front of us in our office, for example. So it is more than likely going to be efficacious. Number four, effective. This means that there's evidence of the treatment or service actually worked. If the client's treatment has remained largely the same and there's been limited improvement in the client's symptoms or functioning, then the treatment itself isn't effective and needs to be reevaluated and the treatment plan needs to be revised. And 
Fifth, is it efficient? The intensity, frequency, and duration of services are logical and they're not wasteful. So an example of this, I went to a medical clinic once for a minor injury and I walked out with a bag of doodads that were completely unrelated to the cut that I walked in with. I was given a heating pad. I was given some weird back scratching device. The treatment that I was given wasn't logical and it appeared wasteful. In my own kind of reflective process in this as a patient, it really did appear to me that that this particular provider was kind of trying to side bill some services. And in this case, it wasn't at all efficient for me to get this treatment that wasn't really related to my condition. And I also want to jump back quickly to the why of our clinical records. Um, I think that this why goes back further than just when we're writing our notes. When we're really conscientious in our work and we stop to really consider why we're doing what we're doing, we become much more effective in our sessions. For example, why am I self-disclosing? Well, I'm doing it in order to normalize a client's experience or to build rapport. Why am I recommending cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, because this client has pervasive negative thought patterns, and that seems to be interfering with his, her, or their quality of life. When we operate from a position of why, we're self-aware, flexible, and responsive. And who would not want those characteristics in a therapist? When you really think about it, there's a why, an explanation really, for almost everything that we do clinically, like whether we lead the client as we walk down the hallway to our office, or if we let the client lead. That particular situation is about power dynamics, right? We did something for a reason. If we let the client walk in front of us, there was absolutely a why. There was a reason for why we did that. When it's clinically relevant, this why becomes basically the meat of medical necessity and why we're doing what we're doing. In a moment, we're going to take a little jaunt into some of the laws that cover medical necessity. In this particular course, we're going to be talking specifically about some California laws. And for those of you who are not in California, I want to point out most states have some kind of laws that define or relate to medical necessity. I would really encourage you to reach out to your professional organization as they might have guidance about that. You also might have some luck just Googling it, or you can always speak with a behavioral health attorney in your state to see what laws pertain specifically to medical necessity. I'm pulling California's today um, for a couple of reasons, one of them being that they're really illustrative. One of the things I like about the California laws is that they very clearly define what medical necessity is through the eyes of the Department of Insurance and the Department of Managed Healthcare. And I also provide these definitions because they're thorough and they're really clear. I think it's important to have something really cohesive that we're looking at when we're conceptualizing the legal impact or the legal legal guidelines relating to medical necessity. So again, for those of you who are outside of California, feel free to look up these resources in your particular state. In fact, I encourage you and do still listen to this part about California because it gives you a taste of what's out there in the other states and further kind of defines medical necessity to help you conceptualize it when you're thinking about how you're delivering care, why you're delivering care, and then how you're documenting it. Let's turn our focus now to some of the laws that relate to medical necessity in California. Looking at California Health and Safety Code section 1374.33, this particular law relates primarily to the Department of Managed Healthcare. The DMHC is an organization that's run by the state that basically helps providers and patients or clients advocate for services that their insurance providers might have otherwise denied. And this law is relevant because it gives us a pretty clear definition of how they're defining medical necessity as part of their reviews. So let me read part of it. Following its review, the reviewer or reviewers shall determine whether the disputed healthcare service was medically necessary based on the specific medical needs of the enrollee and any of the following. Number one, peer-reviewed scientific and medical evidence regarding the effectiveness of the disputed service. Number two, nationally recognized professional standards. Number three, expert opinion. Number four, 
generally accepted standards of medical practice, and five, treatments that are likely to provide a benefit to the patient for conditions for which other treatments are not clinically efficacious. So again, to do a quick review, when they're evaluating medical necessity as part of the Department of Managed Healthcare, they're looking at the specific needs of the patient, as well as scientific and medical evidence, nationally recognized professional standards, expert opinion, generally accepted standards, and that the treatment is likely to be clinically efficacious. All of these pieces come together for us as clinicians because this basically is how we deem something to be medically appropriate ourselves. Basically, is there medical and scientific evidence supporting it? Is this a professional standard? So for example, one thing I see at the higher levels of care, um, it's pretty standard for a client to go from residential treatment down to partial hospitalization, which is fancy insurance language for day treatment, and then go into intensive outpatient. One thing that I see on the insurance end is that sometimes you have people that will effectively be recommended by the insurance company for a jump from residential to intensive outpatient. That's not really a standard. Um, So for example, we might decide as providers that that isn't medically appropriate and it's not medically necessary or recommended. Another thing that the reviewers are looking for is expert opinion. Who are experts? In this case, we're some of the experts because we have all of this education, these fancy letters after our names. Again, when we put on our, on our special clinical hat, um, we're offering an expert opinion. Our charts need to reflect this expert opinion about why this service is medically necessary. Also, what are the generally accepted standards? Is it pretty standard for somebody who has a behavioral health disorder to be in outpatient psychotherapy? Absolutely. Again, we need to reflect all of these pieces in our chart. If there is some evidence supporting the treatment that we're recommending, we should reference that evidence. This is particularly helpful if we are working with managed care and we're working with an insurance company. Bringing it all back to this particular law, what I like about this is it really spells out for us what medical necessity means. It kind of takes away all of the ambiguity and gives us a really clear definition of how we can basically... Um, apply medical necessity to our work. The next law I want to take a look at is California Welfare and Institutions Code 14059.5, which states, quote unquote, a service is medically necessary or a medical necessity when it is reasonable and necessary to protect life, to prevent significant illness or significant disability, or to alleviate severe pain. This definition is really important to note. The state welfare code is defining medical necessity to include services that protect life and alleviate severe pain. I would argue that counseling and therapy alleviate severe pain, and that helps take a pretty firm stance for support of behavioral health treatment. This doesn't apply to just medical. One of the things that's particularly complicated about medical necessity, particularly for insurance-based providers, is the fact that there's a set of guidelines that the insurance companies have created, their own internal guidelines to determine medical necessity. One of the reasons that I bring up these two laws, the Welfare and Institutions Code and the Health and Safety Code, these laws upstage the insurance company guidelines. I want to point out those guidelines are simply guidelines there to help the insurance company make decisions about the service that's being recommended or uh, pursued by the provider. And all it is is a guideline. These are hard and fast laws that we're talking about. And if we suspect that our care is reasonable and necessary to alleviate severe pain or to prevent significant illness, again, that needs to be reflected in our clinical chart. Now that we've taken a look at some of the California laws that relate to medical necessity, let's move into the accrediting bodies. So today we're going to be looking at both a Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities, which is known as CARF, as well as the Joint Commission. Both are large accrediting bodies in the United States, and they have the goal of evaluating the care that facilities and providers offer to their clients or patients, And the programs that meet the rigorous standards are provided with a seal of accreditation. 
For those of you who are not familiar with these accreditation agencies, they're kind of like a AAA rating or a Zagat rating for providers instead of for hotels or restaurants. Many insurance companies only authorize treatment with providers who are accredited by CAR for Joint Commission. And for this reason, it's very important to satisfy the accreditation requirements. Both CARF and the Joint Commission also, I should note, have very specific standards in relation to their clinical documentation. Both the Joint Commission and CARF evaluate the appropriateness of facility admissions as well as the quality of documentation. And interestingly, both stop short of defining medical necessity, but they consistently encourage the use of sound clinical documentation as a means to produce reliable, appropriate, targeted, and individualized care. Joint Commission says this in their Guide to Practical Documentation. Today, the quality and content of the client record may well determine whether treatment is deemed appropriate and level of care are justified and reimbursable. That's pretty important. So they're saying basically our evaluation of medical necessity is not going to be based on what the client says or what the provider says. It's going to be based on the client record in order to determine whether the treatment was appropriate and the level of care is justified and reimbursable. In other words, when we really integrate medical necessity into our clinical documentation, we can better satisfy the Joint Commission and also satisfy CARF. Now that we've taken a look at some of the laws that relate to medical necessity in California, and we've also looked at the accreditation agencies, let's now take a look at the behavioral health medical necessity criteria that are released by insurance companies. Remember that the Parity Act in 2008 required that the insurance companies make their guidelines readily available for patients and providers. This is a really important piece of treatment for those of us who either use our insurance benefits as patients or we deliver care to our clients through insurance payments. Um, These criteria basically are the language of the insurance company. If you were to Google medical necessity criteria, Cigna medical necessity criteria, Anthem, you're going to come up with with these different words to describe medical necessity. Basically, this is a language of each individual insurance company. If you're a person that accepts insurance or you advocate for clients through utilization review and want to assist them in using their insurance benefits, it's really important that you have these medical necessity criteria and you understand what they are. Uh, So I wanna take a moment to read through some of these criteria. I've just randomly selected the residential substance use treatment criteria for Anthem. Uh, This is released in 2012. But so I'm just going to go through some of these criteria and talk about these guidelines and give an example of how this applies to you as a treatment provider. So one of their medical necessity criteria is that criterion is that the member is unable to control alcohol or drug use and that that puts the member in imminent danger of relapse that will likely lead to imminent danger. So basically what they're saying is that this person has difficulty controlling their substance use and that they're in imminent danger of relapse. Chances are, if you have a client who's appropriate for residential substance use treatment, they are unable to control their alcohol and drug use. This needs to be reflected in your chart. You need to establish medical necessity by speaking specifically to this point. What has a client said or what have they done to illustrate that they don't have um, right now very much ability to control their substance use and that they're in imminent danger? What history, what historical factors support this belief? If this person often, um, when faced with a life stressor, has responded by relapsing and they have limited frustration tolerance, then you can pretty easily show in your clinical documentation and the way that you're writing it that this client is unable to control their substance use and that this may lead to relapse based on their history. Another criterion, the member does not understand the relationship between their addiction and their problems coping or functioning. So again, let's take a deeper look at this. I would say the majority of our clients, if we're in substance use treatment, for example, do not understand the relationship between their addiction and their problems coping. Then it's on us as providers to basically show in our clinical documentation that persuasive tool why this is true of our client, assuming that it is true. 
Next criterion, the member has craving immediate gratification or drug seeking behavior and continued use poses an imminent danger of harm to self without 24 hour care. So to wrap that one up, basically the client has cravings and if they continue to use a substance, they are in imminent danger and they need to be in 24 hour care, in which case residential is the level of care we're talking about. If our clients have cravings, we need to be documenting it. The insurance company is saying really clearly, this is one of the medical necessity criteria. Uh, another one is uh, the member's social network is made up of substance users such that achieving recovery is not considered likely at a lower level of care. Let's be perfectly honest here for anybody that works in substance use disorder treatment. A good number of our clients have a social network that's made up predominantly of other substance users. One of our responsibilities is to help them find other social relationships outside of that substance or of that culture. Again, here the insurance company is saying one of the things we're using to evaluate whether or not this person is medically appropriate for residential substance use treatment is whether or not their social network is made up of other substance users. They're telling you this, therefore our clinical documentation really needs to reflect all of these points. Now that we've taken a look at some of the insurance company-based definitions of medical necessity, I want to take a quick jaunt over into Medi-Cal and its perspective on medical necessity. I know that a number of you are providers with drug Medi-Cal and the organized delivery system, and it's important to note what criteria they use to determine medical necessity. In order for drug Medi-Cal reimbursement, you have to meet medical necessity criteria, and those criteria are based on the American Society of Addiction Medicine, the ASAM criteria. Um, a lot of you drug counselors were trained in ASAM, and you're at an advantage because of this. Therapists weren't necessarily trained in the criteria, and I want to do a quick review about this. So for substance abuse treatment, the ASAM basically establishes a holistic set of concepts that help us determine whether a service is medically appropriate. There are six different dimensions, and those dimensions are the following. Number one, acute intoxication and or withdrawal potential. So is this patient presently intoxicated, or is there, are there in active withdrawals, and what are the factors that are contributing to this? What's the risk of withdrawal if they stop taking the substance that they're currently taking? Dimension two, biomedical conditions and complications. So for us, this is a reflection on whether or not, let's say the patient has a pain management issue that might be relating to their substance use disorder, or do they have cirrhosis, for example, related to their alcohol use disorder. Dimension three is emotional, behavioral, or cognitive conditions and complications. Does a client have a comorbid behavioral health condition like ADHD or depression or bipolar disorder? that is influencing their substance use disorder or is being influenced by the substance use disorder. Many individuals will use different substances in order to possibly manage their emotional, behavioral, or cognitive conditions. So this is one of the pieces that the ASAM and Medi-Cal really want us to speak to. Dimension four is readiness to change. So is this person in a state to receive treatment and benefit from it? Going back to the whys of clinical documentation, why or why not? Why do we think this person is appropriate for treatment at this time? Why do we think past treatment episodes maybe weren't effective, but we're hopeful that this one will be? That's where we need to indicate this. Dimension five is the uh, relapse or continued use or continued problem potential. So what barriers can you as a provider anticipate that might interfere with this person's ability to maintain sobriety or recover from their substance use disorder? What are we doing to provide wraparound care from an ethical perspective in order to support them? And dimension six, their recovery and living environment. So is their home or where they're going to go live, is that safe and substance free? If not, how are we clinically managing that as a provider? The ASAM allows us to break down all of these different subsets of information and evaluate through that the medical necessity criteria. So if you do receive payment through Medi-Cal, keep in mind that this evaluation is really occurring through the, through the eyes of the ASAM. I want to transition into something that I call the clinical cycle. 
this is basically a four-step process and it's designed to be done on a continual basis. It's not a one-time deal. These four steps are the mental health assessment. So basically this involves us completing an assessment or evaluation and that includes a documentation of the symptoms or the behaviors and the impairments in life functioning, as well as the client's needs and their strengths. One of the things that I often see missing in clinical documentation is documentation of the impairment itself. So it's not just that the client, for example, has insomnia, but how is this insomnia affecting their quality of life? And I want to quickly point out, I know that I've recently given a number of examples that have been related to substance use disorders. Rest assured, for those of you who are primary mental health providers, these medical necessity factors are just as pertinent for providers uh, who don't treat addictive disorders, and they're applicable to behavioral health providers. So once we've completed this assessment, we basically sit down, put on our fancy clinical hats, and evaluate how these symptoms, behaviors, and impairments relate to a formal diagnosis. That's the second part of the equation. From this diagnosis, we basically create our treatment plan. That treatment plan needs to include the goals and objectives that are linked to these symptoms, behaviors, and impairments, and also the interventions that we're going to do as providers that are going to assist that client in achieving those objectives or those goals. All of these pieces then feed into the progress note. How do these goals and objectives interventions become part of the progress note? How do we create goal-based therapy that we're delivering to the client? All of these pieces need to be continually reevaluated. Oftentimes, we'll do a treatment plan at the onset of the client's treatment And then we basically forget to update it and revise it as the client changes and their condition changes. Ethically, we can't fall asleep at the wheel, even though it's easy to do this and kind of do the treatment plan and then let it gather dust. We need to be asking ourselves constantly, is what I'm doing effective and appropriate? If it's not, the treatment plan needs to be changed. I like to say, if it's not working, change it. If it's still not working, stop it. Harkening back to the medical model and its relationship with with medical necessity, imagine a doctor who recommends a treatment regardless of whether or not it's effective. This concept is much bigger than just reimbursements from insurance companies. We have a constant responsibility to be checkity-checking ourselves and making sure that what we're doing is clinically sound. If we don't, we're potentially failing our clients. If we're adamant that a certain treatment is appropriate for our client, then we need to illustrate why it's appropriate in our clinical documentation. At that moment, our clinical documentation not only becomes part of our reflective process, basically, what did I assess? What did I diagnose? What's a treatment plan? How am I documenting it? But it also becomes a client advocacy tool. Another thing that I think is helpful when conceptualizing medical necessity is looking at it through the lens of functional impairment. Um, I want to give a quick quote from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, so from SAMHSA, and the quote is this, Substance use disorders occur when the recurrent use of alcohol and or drugs causes clinically and functionally significant impairment, such as health problems, disability, and failure to meet major responsibilities at work, school, or home. So in this case, being SAMHSA, of course, this is relating to substance use disorders, However, it has a bigger scope for mental health disorders as well. So again, they're looking at functionally significant impairments in health problems, disability, failure to meet major responsibilities at home, school, or at work. So when we're looking at symptoms, we can have one particular symptom, but how it affects a client may be very different. Um, My example of this that I give in my uh, live presentations Uh, refers to a guy that I've named Chuck. And if there are any of you out there listening named Charles or Chuck, I apologize in advance. Um, so, So here's the thing about Chuck. We all know this guy. He's the guy who has like two bottles of wine in a night and he shows up to work the next morning. He's super chipper. He's really bright. Um, he's just like, Hey, you know, good morning, great weekend. And you would have no idea that he had been drinking heavily the night before. And largely, there are very limited functional impairments that we can observe. So what I mean by that, he's at work on time, 
He doesn't have issues with his family or with his spouse relating to his alcohol use. He is largely able to maintain his safety. There haven't been any big legal ramifications or any small ones for that matter because of his drinking behavior. There may be some issues with his health relating to a substance use, but again, to us as, as mental health professionals, that's not going to be generally available to us uh, in an assessment or during treatment unless, of course, we're consulting with an MD and we've referred out. But so back to my buddy Chuck. So Chuck is largely really functionally okay, even though he has this pretty heavy substance use disorder where he's regularly drinking a couple of bottles of wine per night. Largely, he's able to function in the world just fine. So here's the thing. (laughs) If I were to have two bottles of wine in a night, I would be a legitimate puddle. I would absolutely not make it to work the next day. I would absolutely have problems with my family and with my spouse. Uh, My little one would not make it to daycare. I certainly would not be competent as a therapist. I would not be safe to drive. There may be legal consequences. Um, I, I really probably, like I said, I'd be like a puddle. I wouldn't get out of bed. So when we're looking at just like this one particular symptom, in this case, alcohol use and alcohol use involving a couple of bottles of wine in an an evening, let's say, for me and for Chuck, it has very different implications and ramifications. That difference is really what implies medical necessity. So for me, um, I would have a lot of functional impairment associated with that substance use. But Chuck, on the other hand, he's able to go into work the next day. Uh, He's able to be bright and chipper and competent. He's able to be safe. He's able to make decisions that are appropriate and legal, and he doesn't have any big relational issues. So when you're thinking about medical necessity, I want you to remember this example of me and my buddy Chuck at work. Um, And again, I'm sorry to any of the Chucks out there. So it's more than just identifying the symptom, but also understanding the ramifications associated with that symptom when we're looking at the person's functioning at work, school, or at home, or how it's affecting their other behavioral health conditions or other medical conditions. The Joint Commission gives an example of something they call so what questioning in their practical guide to clinical documentation. I choose this example because I think it's a really clear illustration of the importance of medical necessity and also kind of an easy tool that we can use. Am I documenting medical necessity? So let's imagine that you're at the doctor and you've just been told that you have a serious medical condition. So what questioning is basically the questions that might come up from the patient. So that might include, so what does that data all mean, doctor? So what is my condition? So what are my problems? So what should I do to resolve the problems I have and where do I start? So what can you or others do to help me? So what can I do to help myself? So what should I look for and watch to see that I'm progressing? These elements are so what are pretty reasonable things for a patient to be asking a doctor. And we need to take a cue from this and apply this to our notes. Again, if our notes are a persuasive tool for the reader to understand why we did what we did. That so what, if it weaves its way through our documentation, can paint a really clear picture Uh, about medical necessity. Our clinical documents basically need to continually answer a patient's so what questions. I want to take this concept a step further and specifically apply it to your clinical documentation. And this is really a means to help you establish medical necessity. Here's an example, and I'm going to start with a sentence that's actually written in a progress note. Quote, Client reports that he's been feeling increasingly more tearful and sad and that he's been having trouble getting out of bed in the morning due to lack of motivation and energy, end quote. That's a really clear sentence that one of us or all of us might include in a progress note. Really clear illustration of a client's symptoms. So what? Let's say that this client is a primary caretaker for his young children And his depression has been interfering in his parenting. He's more irritable. He's more withdrawn. Let's also say that he's been socially isolating and avoiding friends and loved ones. 
So what? Well, there's an indicator here then that his depression is becoming more functionally significant on his quality of life. Let's say that he's been having trouble getting the kids to school on time because he's been having trouble getting out of bed and that that's in turn impacting the school performance of the children. Do you see how now we're really shifting into the client's functional impairment, getting away from the symptoms, but talking about how those symptoms actually appear for that client in his life? And in our fancy clinical language, when we have our fancy clinical hat on, quote unquote, in this case, the client is failing to fulfill major role obligations. So, so what? He's becoming a more hands-off parent. So what? Well, let's step back another step further. He's already beginning to have a significant impairment in an important area of his life, in his family functioning, and also in his social life. And let's say that he also has a personal and family history of severe depression. He's particularly at risk for suicide, let's say, because he had a past suicide attempt four years ago. So it's not just that he has symptoms of tearfulness and sadness and trouble getting out of the bed. We're also looking at the clinical significance of those symptoms and how they affect this client and what might be relevant or pertinent in this client's case because of those symptoms. To really illustrate medical necessity, that note should say something like, client reports increasing tearfulness and sadness and difficulty getting his children to school on time because of lack of energy and motivation. His depressive symptoms appear to be impacting his family life and his children's academic success. And he also has both a personal and family history of severe depressive episodes. Additional intensive psychotherapy and intensive group treatments are recommended to moderate the risk of suicide since the client has a personal history of a suicide attempt four years ago, and we wish to improve the client's depressive symptoms. Do you see how all these pieces begin to weave together? It's not just the symptoms that matter, but also our clinical interpretation of these symptoms and their impact on the client's functioning. That impact is what really speaks to medical necessity. And when you're writing your notes, I think it's helpful to try to take a step back and, and not just write the symptom or the client's quote in our clinical documentation, but also kind of ask ourselves, so what? So what if the client has worse insomnia? So what if they started drinking a little bit more at night? What does that actually mean? Does that mean that we're changing their diagnosis? Does it mean we need to update the treatment plan? Does it mean that we're going to recommend more intensive group therapy or that we might refer the client back to their psychiatrist for medication check? All of those so what's, those so what questions basically make us more diligent and attentive clinicians. So let's now bring all of these pieces together. Medical necessity, regardless of the funding source, be it insurance or Medi-Cal or private pay, really lays the foundation for everything we do as behavioral health providers. This is bigger than just whether or not our bills are going to get paid by insurance companies. Just as it would be unethical to recommend a treatment to a client that has not been shown to be effective, it would also be unethical to deliver treatment that isn't truly medically necessary. Medical necessity involves putting together the puzzle part of our own clinical process in order to help our clients get better faster. All of this information about medical necessity matters because it impacts the way you approach both the treatment you provide to your clients or patients as well as your clinical documentation. I want to help you work smarter, not harder. In this course, we've taken a look at some of the historical factors about utilization review and medical necessity came to be what they are. We've also taken a look at the point of clinical records, as well as some different perspectives on medical necessity. We've looked at the related laws, which are really important for us to know in our work because that has both legal and ethical implications. We've taken a look at what the accreditation agencies say so that we can satisfy the Joint Commissioner CARF if we work for a facility that uses accreditation. And we've also taken a look at those third-party payer expectations. If you are a provider who uses uh, managed care to provide care to your clients, I really recommend that you look up those level of care medical necessity criteria because like I said previously, they're a tool that you can use in order to advocate for your clients. And all of these laws, all of these regulations really come together to encourage us as providers to be very conscientious of the care that we're providing. Chances are that we are, 
It just may not necessarily been making, be making its way into our clinical documentation. And that's one of the most important pieces of this. It's not just the application of medical necessity, but then how do we actually apply it to our clinical documentation? Uh, for more on this topic in the application of medical necessity to our specific clinical documentation, like assessments and treatment plans and progress notes, please take a look at my other courses. And thank you for joining us. I hope that this course was helpful to you. And I hope that it will improve your processes and help us slow down and get a little bit more reflective about why we're doing what we're doing, because the work we're doing matters so much. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.